Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 164th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows that winter is coming and it's time to cuddle up in the hive. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis <laughs> Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. How are you doing on this little chilly evening here? We're almost to summer, I swear it. Yeah, it's it's uh, like 40 today and 70 on Thursday, I think. In Canadian math, eh? That's like nine degrees Celsius, eh? <laughs> It'll and be... the, maple sir- the maple syrup's frozen on the trees. Yeah, so it's it's uh it's a pretty dramatic swing there. We go from just over freezing to mid June weather like overnight. Yeah, um, and nobody cares. No. The, hey, Niagara Falls this weekend. Are you coming down? Uh, I'm going to try to make it. Uh, I gotta arrange things because uh, I usually have baby duty that morning. Um, but I do have packages that I put your name on just in case. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to pick up for me from a booth. Um. Because there was shipping shenanigans that worked out really perfectly if one or more of us made it to the booth on time. Okay. Um, well, I'll be there pretty much no matter what. I, um, I'm i not going to get there until early afternoon at the earliest anyways, I think. So, I mean, that's not a big deal. Uh, the story here is that Corbin's coming into town. Ma- every, uh, Magic's favorite uh event writer he's coming into town uh friday night and i'm picking him up and we have uh, my social group and i i mentioned to my friends who are all magic players right and they all you know they're all connected um i mentioned that he was coming in friday night and i'm like oh i'm like well i wish you take corbin to get wings and then that kicked off an immediate conversation and anyone who's who's from buffalo is familiar with this is well where do you get where's the best wings in buffalo um and they're you know you asked certain people and they'll draw blood over it but there is a a healthy amount of discourse over this topic here in the city so in the last like three weeks we've gone to like four or five different restaurants and just eaten chicken wings i've eaten more chicken wings in the last month than probably the (laughs) last five years prior to that um in fact we went earlier this evening but we found the place that we think that out of all of us, we agreed to have the best chicken wings. So Friday night, I am taking Corbin for what I have determined to be the best chicken wings in Buffalo. Just, uh, just, just steal yourself for him not appreciating whatever like artisan quality chicken wing you present to him. Yeah. Well, first of all, they're served out of a Knights of Columbus, so it artisanal is not anywhere in this conversation. <laughs> uh, but I, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm assuming he's going to try them and go, yeah, these are good. So are Buffalo Wild Wings, right? Like the thing is, is that <laughs> if you don't, if you, if you lack the palate, the really great stuff and the garbage all taste relatively similar. I'm so, curious to see how this turns out. Yeah, you know, I th- I do have a GoPro. I was thinking about uh, hooking it up and recording it <laughs> so that everyone could enjoy the moment. Um, we'll see how he's feeling Friday night. <laughs> yeah, I still haven't forgotten when we took him to the all-you-can-eat Brazilian steakhouse, well-known for its incredibly good cu- cuts of meat, and he was complaining that he felt bad that he had to ask them to come back to the table too often because he wanted too much meat. Yeah, yeah. Well, in his defense, they did stop coming. 
Like, there was him, there was somebody else at our table, right, who wanted them to keep coming, and they kind of stopped. I think it was just, like, we got there pretty late. Yeah. He he couldn't couldn't leave the GP floor that late. And it wasn't, like, normally around, if you're there during normal dinner hours, it's an, it truly is an unlimited supply of meat. Yeah. You know, I, I remember that because I brought you a Founders KBS, a 2015 edition, uh, which at the time were actually fairly rare. And I gave it to you in the restaurant and you left it on the table. And uh, we realized that like five minutes later after we walked out of the restaurant that you had left it behind. So we turned around and they go grab it. And the hostess was like, oh, yeah, they already drank it. And I'm like, that's a... <laughs> Like that was a fourteen percent beer, and we've been gone for six minutes. <laughs> so you know, they enjoyed it's, that. It's the Canadian liquor license laws. You, if anybody leaves some alcohol on the table, eh, you got to drink it right away. Well, it was the first, or, good, or, or the Mounties come and take you away. It was the first good beer anyone in Canada had ever had. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I, I can hear all the Mounties getting their, their horses revved up to go into battle. <laughs> all right uh mtg wait no that's not mine uh our show is produced by mtgprice.com the leading mtg finance community sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection track your specs chat on discord and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby mtg fast finance is proudly sponsored by cool stuff inc where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock including all the best in magic the gathering singles sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles I've been uh, picking up some miniatures for my D&D campaign there lately, for instance. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Uh, Okay. You know, I'm going to chime in here real quick. Uh, The 3D printers are really cool if you do that type of thing. Um, You know, there's a little bit of effort in getting that off the ground, but it gives you a level of customization and a speed that is really unheard of. I think that I feel like that will stand to revolutionize the tabletop gaming environment. So if I pick out a 3d, uh, schematic for like a destroyed town or something I want to use as a setting in my campaign, can Mm -hmm. I pay you to print that off for me? Uh, yes, but it's not going to be anytime soon. We're set to move in about a month. Um, and that house is going to require some elbow grease when we land. So the 3D printer has been off for several weeks now, and it's not getting turned on anytime soon. Uh, but eventually, yes, that's very viable. Did you see the picture of the altered Brea that's getting sent my way from Europe? I did. Uh, and I think I remember the, seeing the name, but I don't remember who it was. Who was that? Uh, let me look up the lovely Altruist, since they definitely deserve some kudos. But it is an so, awesome looking card. I like that stained glass look quite a bit. It and it, because you know the commanders are foil um, by mm-hmm. nature. It is like the video clip um, I've seen, but can't download from Twitter. Um, but when I post it, people are going to be like, "Whoa, it is real nice." So did she use like um, a translucent paint or something? I have no idea what the exact process was. All I I remember booking this like two months ago because I saw them post some other. Um, piece that they had done that was really, really nice. And I was just like, I need one of those. Uh, why don't you go ahead and order a Japanese Brea and do it up for me and then let me know what it's going to cost. And uh, I just heard back from them. As you tend to with an altruist, like when you book that thing, just fire forget and like check back in months later because they're usually overloaded with stuff to do. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt. Uh, well, if you remember her name, 
you can share it with us here. I, I'm having trouble locating it in my inbox just because I have like 80 people I've talked to in the last 24 hours uh, on Twitter. But once I do, I will certainly add it into the conversation. Okay. All right. So uh, I know you were going to ask me what our show consists of this week. And it is a show in... Does it have uh, four parts? Uh, it does. Yeah. Surprisingly. Whoa. It almost didn't. It almost didn't. We might not have had four parts if there weren't spoilers. Um, segment one is our top movers. We're going to talk about the cards that have increased the most in price this week. A segment we do, not because we don't think that you know how to read the top movers of the week. You're very clearly <laughs> capable of reading those words off of a screen. But we like to think that the conversation regarding it is valuable because you understand why things are happening, helps you understand in the future, and gives you some idea of whether it's something we think might keep moving or whether you should get out of and that type of stuff. And we always end up spinning out of this into these speeches anyway. So uh, it's not because we think you're all literate. Yeah. So some of the most persistent critique in the MTG finance world between content creators is often misguided from the angle that they judge the content based on whether it's useful to them and the problem with that is you know most of the content that's put out there regardless of what sphere you're talking about is meant for the people that are working their way towards that position there are quite uh, a few you know people in the mtg finance community there's like forty thousand people on the reddit mtg finance uh uh the section of reddit for mtg finance alone and uh, several thousand people listen to this cast every week. And we hear from people all the time that are very thankful to have uh, the detailed explanations we provide. So if you're wondering ever why we get into that kind of thing, that's why. Okay. So that's segment one. Segment two is our cards of the week. Uh, James and I will review with you the cards that we think might go up in price. Uh, none of you deserve this. And we only do it because James makes me. Uh, segment three is our metagame week in review. Grand Prix Sao Paulo had a modern event. We'll touch on that briefly. And segment four, topic of the week, more war spoilers. A lot more exciting cards out there. Um, and we will be sure to tell you exactly what happens in the storyline because I know everyone's tuning in to have the storyline spoiled for them. So I will be sure to put that in uh, unex- unexpectedly and I will not tag it. <laughs> and, and we can finally talk about... <laughs> The card that I kept my mouth shut about for two months <laughs> finally uh, revealed. All right, so we'll we'll we will reveal that once we get there. Uh, segment one, our top movers. First card of the week: Monastery Mentor out of Fate Reforged. Non foils, uh, about ten to twenty. Uh, so there's going to be a theme this week, and that theme is feathers. Uh, I think like literally half the cards in a twenty-four card list are because of the feather commander. Uh, so get used to hearing us say that a lot. Monastery mentor very is going to be popular in that deck because you're going to be casting a lot of spells ideally. And monastery mentor makes a bunch of dudes when you cast spells and is most definitely one of the most important cards to put in that deck. I was looking through the early EDH rec builds and they were very heavy on playing tons of instants and sorceries and a little light on everything else. And let me tell you that everything else is going to be the important part. Um, so, and monastery mentor is going to be a big part of that. Uh, and I know this is legit because I sold two or three of them this week at like 13 or 14 yep. bucks. Um, so did I. I sold yeah. at 20. Did you? I, I just had I had just put them up a couple days before Feather was spoiled. And then suddenly they all sold. And I didn't actually put two and two together until like I was putting this list together. I'm like, oh, that's why suddenly all of those sold. Mentor yeah. is a good little case study, too, because um, what tends to happen when a hot new commander is revealed is everybody dives in on the specs these days. 
And the thing is that if that commander is a flash in the pan or turns out to not be quite as popular as you hoped, you're going to end up sitting on some of that stuff for longer than you were hoping to. Um, so I'm always less comfortable with, say, something like Foil Defiant Strike, which ends up on this list uh, down the road and is very specific to Feather, than something like Monastery Mentor, which is so good it's restricted in Vintage, um, playable in Legacy, Modern, Cube, um, and EDH, and gets a boost from Feather, but was already heading uphill anyway, because it's a few years out of print, it's a Mythic, usually played as a four of where it can be, and... You know, Feather just pushes it up into the next plateau. And once the Feather hype dies down in a few months, if Feather, you know, Feather's probably going to be a mid-tier-ish kind of commander, like it'll probably have its moment, and then people will be on to other interesting commanders in relatively short order. Um, You know, Feather might post up in the top 20 of all time if she really has a good run of it. But, you know, Mentor is going to be, it already had great buy list support in and around $10, and backed the play to get in on $10 copies um, heading into Feather. So now you've got a chance to out at $20, and if the waters recede a little bit, you can just go right back to buy list and unload whatever you didn't manage to get out of, which is going to be definitely harder with some of these other Feather cards we're about to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, I would argue that uh, Monastery Mentor is probably the most universal of the Feather cards, but... um... Let's, let's move along here. We got a bunch of these to cover. Unmoored Ego out of Guilds of Ravnica. Foils about six bucks up to about 13 uh, for a nice little clean double up. This has been used quite a bit in uh, standard and modern as a sideboard card. I be- my, my guess here is that it is a, a complement to surgical extraction. It is not quite as effective as surgical extraction in answering something like Arclight Phoenix or uh, Vengevines or, or Hollow Ones or whatever. Uh, but it does give you a little bit of flexibility in targeting something like the Amulet Titan decks because uh, a Surgical Extraction is going to do nothing against a Amulet Titan deck for the most part, but Unmoored Ego can rip all the Primeval Titans out or whatever. Um, and at the same time, Unmoored Ego will still be effective against the Graveyard decks, just not quite as fast as Surgical Extraction. Frankly, I think paying $13 for foils of this card is nuts. It's a standard, rare, like whatever. Um, not even especially exciting. It's only used a little bit in sideboards. I would be selling these as fast as I could get somebody to take them. It's notable that it's showing up in multiple modern decks. That does give me, you know, some pause. Like Esper Control is <clears throat> ran it uh, as a two of in a sideboard recently in a top eight. Lantern Control, War Prison, and you know, random mill decks and, and lantern decks are all running this card. And I, I think the benefit you know, the downside is that it costs more than Surgical Extraction, um, but the upside is you don't have to wait for a target to be in the graveyard. If you if you get the opportunity, you can proactively attack threats. And if they are, you know, threat light, they have a relatively narrow approach to winning the game, you might catch them off balance. Traditionally, cards like this, um, like Cranial Extraction, have, you know, ebbed and flowed in terms of their effectiveness in various formats, both standard and modern, extended, etc., in the various times and places where they've been found um so i was i'm definitely a little surprised to see these foils take off given the you know moderate play it's seeing but it goes to show the power of dual format usage once you've passed your peak supply point yeah i mean my concern here is that there are a lot of sideboard cards in modern of which foils are not 14 dollars um same goes for standard and i don't I don't know. I, it, it, yes, it's in both of them, but it's not like it's a 
slam four in your sideboard in multiple tier one decks in both formats type of thing. I don't know. I, I think we're both sellers here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, Pyromancer's Goggles out of Magic Origins. Foils there, 12 to about 30. Again, uh, great with Feather. It makes mana, and then it forks the spell when you use that mana to cast Instant or Sorcery. Very cool card. Nasty. Yeah, I think this was, I'm sure, I don't remember, but I'm absolutely sure this was a pick by some one of us at some point in the past. Well, it Todd Anderson advanced a blue-red goggles build, I think, in the summer of either 2016 or 2017 that did well on the SEG tour for a while. Yeah, I remember um, that. And it had a moment. This is a little suspect in Feather, depending on how you're building it, because it only doubles red instants and sorceries. So thing, it doesn't help with Defiant Strike. You can't double it. So you'd really want to be leaning to the red side um, with your spells in the build, um, if this was the case. But most of the stuff you want to cast in Feather is either red, white, or red. So it doesn't limit your choices too, too much. I'm a, I'm a little dubious as to whether a five casting cost artifact is really what you want to do, given how the deck, how fast the deck can unfold if it really wants to. Um, but no one's really played with this deck yet, so I guess we'll see how many you know win more slots you t- you end up running. Yeah, and I, I th- it seems having you know I played Zada, which is the one that um, multiplies the spell the spell for every creature you control when it targets Zada. And it played very much like a combo deck. And a card like this is insane because you want to build up a mana engine um, and then kind of have like a big explosive turn. That's less of a thing in Feathers, I believe. Uh, But even still, the deck is going to want that type of effect uh, because it's going to want a mana generation to kind of set up these big turns. Red, white, you know, for the most part has trouble keeping up with the mana and they're going to need those types of effects. Now, let me interject because I know our listeners will jump on you for this. Can you explain why you're calling it Feathers and not Feather? Oh, it is Feather. I <laughs> So there is a very, very old Ultima Online, like the original Ultima Online joke. And it's Feathers, F-E-T-H-E-R-S. And there is no hope that I'm going to say any. I'm not just going to say Feathers because okay. it just, it's burned into my brain. Fair. So I, I just want to make sure because you know that they're going dis- to like uh, destroy us for if they th- think that it's unintentional. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is, <laughs> but it's it's intentionally unintentional, I guess. Got it. All right. So uh, moving right along. Serum powder, uh, non-foils from Iconic Masters moving up again, this time from 5 or $6 to like 14 or so. Um, I have unloaded play sets in and around the $60 range. Um, that I was in on at three or four and selling foil play sets closer to a hundred. Um, not the kind of thing I want to be holding much past London because I'm having trouble believing <laughs> that the London Mulligan is going to survive uh, in modern past this insane combo focused format that I believe is about to unfold. Um, so uh, I'm happily selling through on serum powders uh, on the premise that for one reason or another, they will not be useful in three months. Yeah, I completely agree. This is very much in response to the excitement of the London Mulligan rule. And you're, let me put it this way. If the, if the serum powders are that good under the London Mulligan rule, they will not keep it. 
right? Like you can't have a universe where serum powders are 40 or $50 for any length of time, because if they're, if they're that good, that they're that popular, they're going to rip the London Mulligan rule out uh, or ban serum powder, one or the other. So I'm, I would be selling these all day long. I don't, I don't think I have any, but actually I should really dig through my artifacts. Hmm. I might have some. All right. Okay. So next, Cast next is on the- pause. I got to go look. <laughs> Next on the list is Sundial of the Infinite out of uh, Magic uh, 2012. This is the foils going from eight to about twenty dollars. The assumption here is that the new Boar God uh, that was revealed for Modern Horizons can be, um, because it's a legendary, um, can be targeted with. Basically, you can get it into the graveyard, target it with Gorio's Vengeance, bring it back, and then drop something uh, into play. And Sundial would allow that thing to stay in play. Um, Ilharg the Razebore, of course, is three double red, six six trample. Whenever Ilharg the Razebore attacks, you may put a creature card from your hand onto the battlefield tapped and attacking. Return that creature to your hand at the beginning of the next end step. So if you just end the turn with Sundial, then that never happens. And you end up with the Razebore end, whatever it is that you brought back, which should be good games within another turn or so. Yeah, I uh, I mean, you put Emrakul in the play with it. That's pretty powerful. I mean, you're going to miss the Annihilator trigger, but you still get Emrakul in play, and there's a couple other choices. I have been cranking trying to figure out how do you get Boar into play permanently. Um, you know, what's interesting here is you can... If you use Sundial, doesn't it turn off the Gorio's Vengeance trigger at the end of the turn, too? It, it does. So this would require some setup. Like, you'd have to get Sundial in play, then... Gorio's the boar, and the question and is whether attack. you want to slow down that then, ball, right? Yeah, it's it's kind of weird how that ends up working out, but uh, I mean, it does seem like there might be some legs there. Both, if anything, because the sundial works both if you Gorio's the boar in the play, and also even if you hardcast the boar, it saves the creature you put in the play. So I don't know, like that actually might be good enough um, because you can like if you just Gorio's boar now and then drop Emrakul, that's all. That's like. 20 damage right there, I think. So that could possibly be lethal because he's trample and Emrakul's flying. You, if you have something other, you can still Gorio's Emrakul if you want to. Uh, if you have Sundial in play, it saves the boar if you Gorio's him. If you ha- already have the boar in play, then you can Sundial the Emrakul. So it actually does a lot of work in that deck, possibly. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, I'm not saying you need to save your Sundials. I'm probably still selling them here because that's a real <laughs> stretch, but it is fun to think about. Well, and the problem, and the problem, uh, and the problem here isn't that there aren't a bunch of broken combo decks that are suddenly enabled by the London Mulligan rule, is that there are a whole bunch of combo decks, and so which one comes out on top, and which players choose to pursue that, becomes a matter of some debate. And one of the the things that I think ensures that a combo centric modern will not last is that there are a lot of players in modern that don't really appreciate that style of play, and it's well understood that wizards is, would prefer to see modern become more interactive and not less there's a lot of theory crafting around modern horizons that that's where they're trying that that's what that set will attempt to accomplish is to put pieces of the puzzle into the format that help uh limit the effectiveness of combo decks and so the london mulligan rule really seems to be pulling us in a completely different direction and i'm having trouble believing that that's a direction a course that we will stay on for very long Yep, I'm on board with you there. I, I on both of those points is that they're going to try and use Modern Horizons to make Modern more interactive and push it more towards Legacy's direction, not more into Combo Land and Le- London Mulligan rule. 
runs counterintuitive to that, so I'm not holding my breath. All right, so um, next on the list, we've got Hive Mind out of Magic 2010. Non-foils going from about $4 to about 8 for a double up. Amulet Titan's been using it anew uh, as a win condition, as they have in the past. Um, the build of Amulet Titan shifts with the meta, and in the most recent uh, adjustments, we've seen Hive Mind come back to the forefront. Yep. Uh, Seize the Day out of Ultimate Masters. The foils from Ultimate Masters, 4 to 8 or 9, 10 bucks. Uh, better people are playing season day for multiple combat steps gets you more uh, more use out of those instants and sorceries that you use to pump your creatures up so if you gave your creature double strike now you get to swing twice instead of once it doesn't target any of your creatures so it's not quite that good um, it's not as good as you you're hoping it would be in that regard but still pretty pretty, pretty reasonable yeah uh, next on the list we have eerie interlude this was your pick last week two weeks ago how long ago uh i actually don't know sometime in the last that recently few weeks yeah uh that must have been it was probably it was in year three still because i don't see it on this sheet gotcha so yeah you you go through that and i'll track down what your stats were on that (laughs) okay well anyways Eerie Interlude, Shadows Over Innistrad is a non-foil. Went from just under a dollar up to about three bucks. This is going to be useful in um, Feather as well. Uh, and let me double check the wording on this, but I'm almost positive that, yeah, this is, oh, exile any number of target creatures you control and then return them to the battlefield uh, at the beginning of the next end step. So you Eerie Interlude, so your opponent's Wrath or whatever, you Eerie Interlude targeting your entire board as long as Feather's in play all of your creatures blink and you get the eerie interlude back and you get to do it again the following turn be if you have the mana open because you get the enter the the eerie interlude back at the end of the turn so it's a really good way to play protection um that you also get to re- to buy back if you have feather in play yeah i could see that giving my attracts build some problems actually because i run four or five wrath equivalents um sorcery speed and once you get your eerie interlude engine going it's going to be tough to overcome that like i've got a couple counter spells i've got some point removal but could be tricky um yeah it is, it is obnoxious and uh it also gives your creatures vigilance and if you i see they're all in blue i think like peregrine drake but if you have any effect that untaps your lands when it comes back in the play i'd have to go digging to see if there's a white one or something then it gives you mana every turn too um like at least so that you can keep casting the eerie interlude that's pretty nuts so we also saw the foils go from two to eight dollars um and indeed back in episode 155 february 12th 2019 you called it to go from two to eight dollars it's almost like you're a magician yeah poof although it went to like 250 not eight so no 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 you're looking at the non-foils the foils are also on the list and they did go to eight Oh, well, in that case, voila. Look at you. I did it. Now, the question is, what, what, what is the buy list offer on these right now? I'm going to guess it Probably has not, not caught there up yet. yet. Right? No, because, I mean, this happened like hours ago. Uh, well, it's up to 325 So if you got in at like two or sub two, you're already looking at a very solid little add-on to your buy list order. And if it gets to nice. four, five, six on feather demand in the next month or so, once people actually have feather in hand and actually start building, because we all know that though the speculators are fast and furious on EDH specs these days, the players tend to be a little slower. 
you can considerably so. For what it's worth, uh, I called that card well before we knew that it was. Oh yeah, well before we knew about um, feather. So I would expect. I would expect Eerie Interlude to be looking pretty good. This is this is only better for it, uh, and I would not actually be in a rush to sell here. Yeah. So Contagion Class from Scars of Mirrodin is the latest proliferate card to make some motion. Foil's going from about 4 bucks to, say, $10. Um, that's people assuming that it'll make the cut in some people's builds of Atraxa. I don't think Contagion Clasp's actually good enough, especially given the new pro- proliferate cards that we've got. I think Clasp gets the cut um, from everything but depowered versions of Atraxa. But doesn't mean some people won't just go ahead and run it anyway. Yeah, I don't even think that this is necessarily an Atraxa card, um, but I, I see why people would would think that. I think it's just, hey, this card has is proliferate written on it. It's repeatable. It's inexpensive to cast it, and we we are positive it's not getting reprinted. And we're not even going to think beyond that, right? Like we're not picking a deck for it. We just know it plays in with an, a new theme, and that's good enough. Um, I don't know. It's fine. Like I, you might be able to get nine or ten bucks for the foils on this, just on the age alone. I don't know what the supply looks like. It was an F and M promo too. Um, yeah, whatever. I'd sell them. All right. So next on the list we have Metamai the Ageless from Theros, um, which is another card that people are speculating on on the basis of Ilharg. Um, the premise here is that you basically get infinite turns, right? Uh yes, yeah. Because if you you play, you cast pig, or you get pig in the play. He drops Metamai in the play. Metamai deals damage. You get to take an extra turn. Metamai can't attack, but that's fine because you return it to your hand. And then the following turn, when you attack with Big Pig again, the Metamai is just put into play, attacking. You don't have to declare it as an attacker, so the the restriction isn't in place. Essentially, giving you infinite turns so long as uh, Big Pig isn't going anywhere. So this is a really cool combo, and it was actually as soon as I saw this pop up. Um, on Twitter, I think right after the pig was spoiled, and I immediately was like, okay, wait, how do you get pig in the play permanently? Because this is the combo. I'm like, this is legitimate if you can find a way to get pig to stay in play. Because that's like a basically a two-card combo that is infinite turns, which is good enough. Um, I haven't found it yet. And if somebody does, they might win the Pro Tour. <laughs> so. Well, as I said, a lot of combos are potential for the Pro Tour. The um- Yeah. Uh, Metamai was is from Theros single printing foils were not particularly low because there wasn't any kind of a demand profile um, around this card um, to speak of I think like EDH dan- demand was pretty low on this prior to this yeah Let's see yeah, how many recorded decks we can find uh, EDH rack well, well you look that up I have found four serum powders Nice. Um, in my spec, in my bulk box, and I also found a bunch of Nim Death Mantles. You know, the low on that is like eleven dollars. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So Metamai is actually reported in three thousand decks on EH Rec. Uh, smattering of Commanders, Grand Arbiter Augustine the Fourth, Rafik of the Many, Daxos, etc. So already has like solid, not amazing EDH demand. Um. I would imagine there'll be some retracing here because these are the kind of combos that unless they really inspire hearts and minds tend to be forgotten fairly quickly. Yeah, this would have to be tier two modern in order to stick, I think. This next one's pretty good, though. Balefire Liege from Eventide Foils going from, say, 14 to 50. I think the plateau is probably closer to 30 to 40, realistically. 
Um, but I think you'll be able, if you got in close to 15, I think you will be able to get out in your 30. Um, I picked up a couple of copies locally on the weekend for about 18, I believe. Um, I'll probably price them at 32 to 34 and look to get out of those. I mean, the fact that it basically casts a lightning helix every time you cast a red-white spell, um, and Feather is all about casting so many times per turn cycle, um, means Balefire Liege probably makes it into almost any build of Feather. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is awesome. It pumps all your creatures, so it protects them a little bit. And, you know, you're... You know, if you're making a ton of tokens with Young Pyromancer and Monster Mentor helps there. And the fact that you're just getting some incidental shooting damage to take out people's viziers or whatever and gaining a little bit of life, um, which can, you know, in a, in a good EDH game actually matters. Uh, yeah, this is definitely a... It should be an auto-include. So the next one on the list is Enter the Infinite Foils. Uh, going from... This is from Great Gate Crash. <laughs> going from $10 to 35 this is on the back of the Narset combo we've talked about a few times in the last couple months, um, which gets so much better with the London Mulligan rule. Um, one of these decks that was just so inconsistent has this crazy mix of cards. Gorio's Vengeance, Fury of the Horde, Conflux, Enter the Infinite, Serum, pa- Serum Powder, Omniscience, um, Gemstone Caverns, Grizzlebrand, Emrakul, the whole nine. Like, this is just everything in the kitchen sink. There was just something else printed, too. That this works with like it's in dominar or uh in this set what the hell is it ah there's some card that's getting printed that this like combo like you can cast it is there something that casts a spell for free is that what it is listen we, we don't know this one fact we're fired sorry guys we're calling it perfection is not a I am po- i am positive there is something in this set that casts a, like a sorcery from your hand for free or something. But I don't have, I don't want to read the entire spoiler. We'll, here we'll probably trip over podcast. it as we're going through our, our spoiler updates. So, yeah. Which also seems like it could have been part of this because it was like, oh, look at what you can do with it. Um, Starlet Sanctum foils out of Onslaught, a dollar and change to six bucks. Starlet Sanctum will ring a bell for longtime MTG price readers. You'll remember our good friend and future cast member guest Jason E. All told you all to buy cleric foils on the back of, uh, uh, God, what's her name? Eile, Isla or something from Oath of the, the Gatewatch. Eile the Pilgrim, and he thought it was going to make a cleric deck, and I am currently looking at a box of foil cleric cards that haven't moved since then and i will never not give jason a hard time about that um yeah so eily as far as we can tell has 1300 decks reported on edh rec and is in 5000 decks total which to be fair is not bad 1300 is actually a decent ish number i think the 30th most popular on edh rec has like 2000 or 2100 so you know about half a 30th place people play it um in any case there's no clerics coming up that like people are really jazzed about as far as I can tell, as far as we know. Um, seems like it's just an old onslaught foil that might have caught people's attention. Well, we checked out Taza, uh, and there's not a lot of clerics in Taza. There's Eile, but like that's about it. So this is, you know, doesn't seem like there's any true catalyst here. Yeah. Next on the list, we had uh, M10 Hivemind foils. Uh, as with the prior listing, these ones going from $8 to 30 
Um, I don't think I have any hive mind foils. I don't think I ever thought to buy them. They seem narrow and they don't run four. Um, last I checked. So good on you if you actually happen to be holding these and got to pull them out of your bad spec box. Uh, no, so th- these were never cheap. Like, I mean, th- I remember hive minds being a possibility way back, way back, and they were never really that cheap. So, I mean, you might have been able to pay four or five, but like, it wasn't bulk foil, or at least it hasn't been since Future Sight, basically. Mm-hmm. Pull from Eternity from Time Spiral is a card that I don't think people ever saw spiking. Um, this is a it was a six dollar foil. Now it's a twenty twenty four dollar foil. This is, again, uh, to do with the Narset combo because you use the Pull for Eternity to put things um, back into your graveyard. It basically functions as a... What's the black spell that does that? Uh, Entomb? Yeah, it's basically like a white Entomb if you can um, use uh, uh, Serum Powder or Gemstone. No, it's got to be Serum Powder, right? That you exile all the stuff with at the start and then use Pull from Eternity to put it in the graveyard and then you're casting your Gorio's Vengeance. Yes, yeah, yeah. So you serum powder away a bunch of cards, but then you can pull from Eternity one of those cards back to the top of your library to hit with Narset. Mm, not the top of your library. Pull from Eternity puts it in the graveyard, doesn't it? Oh, then put it into your graveyard shuffle. I don't know. I'm not 100% on the combo. I haven't watched somebody play it yeah, yet. Yeah, pull from Eternity takes put target face-up card that's removed from the game into its owner's graveyard, but only face-up, mind you. Um, yeah, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a distinction. It's a relevant distinction. So it's... Yeah, you you serum powder a hand into exile on purpose. Then you cast Pull from Eternity with your new hand to put Narset in the graveyard and then Gorios her and go to Tam. Such a crazy deck. I <laughs> Oh, that that makes sense. That that makes sense what you're doing. Okay, I hadn't thought about that line, but you put the Narset in the graveyard in order to Gorios it. Huh. And it also rec- returns like if you manage to exile a bunch of emeralds or something that you need you can get them back hmm, that's clever mm-hmm. that's clever um and part of why i think this this whole situation with the linda mulligan and, and and sculpting hands is just not tenable yeah uh defiant strike uh out of concentric here foils 50 cents to like two bucks uh this is just another feather common slash uncommon so Sure, if you can get somebody to pay you $2 for this. The problem is, like, it's, I don't want to It's not these. worth the time to go pick out the single copy of this foil you have sitting around somewhere. Right. Yeah. Um, after that is, let's see, Chandra's Ignition. Um, non-foils, about a dollar to four bucks. Chandra's Ignition is because of Feather. It is, let me get you the uh, rules text here. It is, target creature you control deals damage equal to its power to each other creature and each opponent. So if you get a spicy meatball of a creature, you can Chandra's Ignition it and it shoots everyone at the table, all creatures and all players, and then you get it back next turn. So if you manage to pump up your Feather, you can just kind of Ignition it and then Ignition it you know, kind of run that back. Uh, the best way to use Chandra's Ignition, of course, is to make a creature with like 100 power and then ignition it and kill the entire table at once and get a draw. Uh, I hope that's what you're doing with it. <laughs> that draw is really important when everybody's lying there dead at your feet. Well, it kills you too. Oh. Oh, uh, no, no, I'm no, sorry. No, no. It does not. It does not. There's one of the other ones hits you as well. But yes, the Chandra's Ignition for the win, killing all of your opponents at once is pretty Each tasty. other creature and each opponent, yeah. 
Yeah, I thought I thought there's one. I thought there was one that hits you too. Hmm. Oh well. All right. So mirror wing dragon, same deal. Shoe and card for feather. Um, this was the non foils going from a dollar to five dollars. That's probably relatively sticky because it's a mythic. Um, so they'll probably hang. And a dragon. They'll probably hang out in the five dollars zone. Bylas are already three or four dollars, I think. So um, the exit's there if you manage to get in on on them early. Um, Balduvian Rage out of Cold Snap, same deal, dollar to six dollars. That's also a feather card. Ditto Twin Flame, a dollar to fifteen for the foils. Um, that was single printing Journey into Nyx for the foils. And then Psychotic Fury caps us off out of Dissension, same kind of thing. Foil to, uh, foils going from a dollar to fifteen. They all work very, very well in Feather and will easily make the 99. Um, they're also exactly the kind of specs I would want to be very, very shallow on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, good luck getting most people to pay for any of this, and why would you have owned it in the first place? Like, If you dig them out, sell them, great, move on with your life, but don't get caught up trying to chase this stuff. It's so easy to build Feather very, very cheaply if you don't go the foil route that I actually will for once <laughs> buy into the argument that edh players may be more inclined to build feather non-foil than foil now <laughs> bef- when it was first foiled you could have made the argument that foiling her was very cheap but now that's being challenged so okay. yeah that that's out the window i will probably convert my zada deck to it yeah uh to her just because it's kind of interesting and it gives me a chance to switch it up a little bit i also would have gone the foil route but now that i'm going to pay like seven bucks for all these stupid common foils forget it well, i think what i'm going to do is i'm going to build it non-foil because i'm pretty sure i have all of that sitting around um mm-hmm. and then if i like it then we can talk about foiling it out right i mean there's also the problem that you know you're talking about like oh i'm going to foil this deck because i like to foil my edh decks cool do you want foil psychotic furies? Do you want foil defiant <laughs> strikes? Like, like they're just not useful anywhere else. Part of the reason that you don't have to feel too bad about foiling your EDH decks is you know eventually you'll take that deck apart and you can move those pieces to other places. So it, it's a little more fluid. But like, how many p- decks are you putting defiant strike in? Right? It's just it, you, you, it's it's a one deck type of card, so it feels bad spending the money on it, knowing that it can't do anything else. There's a strong reason that I have invested in Atraxa. <laughs> And not decks like Feather. Um, every time I pull a piece out of Atraxa and put it up for sale, I'm making significant money because it has long ruled the roost as the most important deck. All right, so moving right along. Uh, I guess we'll just pause for a second. The Alterist who did the amazing work on my Brea Alter is Shivan Altered Art on Twitter. At Shivan Art is the Twitter tag. At Shivan Art. S-H-I-V-A-N-A-R-T. Give that very talented artist some business. Uh, I think she's uh, located in Italy, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So you may need to work out a little bit of shipping stuff. But boy, does she do nice work. Nifty. Looking forward to seeing it. All right. Cards Uh, to watch, you jackals. Yeah. Ugin dies. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'm going to just... Having said that, I know there's a Reddit post with the story spoilers. I actually did not read it. Uh, I have no idea whether Ugin lives or dies. I just yelled it because I thought it was funny. So I genuinely, genuinely, well, actually, I don't genuinely apologize if that's what happens. But it is fun. It would be funny if that was the case. I read it. There are still some blanks to be filled in. Um, I don't think it's going to spoil. Okay, stop, 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 I, stop. Just you, know, you can't, you can't say anything else. You can't say anything else because the lack of information is information. Okay, moving right along. Uh, my first pick this week is Clever Impersonator. 
foils out of KTK currently available for, say, 12 to $14, depending on where you're buying them and whether you're using your Cool Stuff Inc. discount or not. Um, I would think that your sell target here is somewhere in the mid-20s. Call it $25 for, say, a 80% gain or so. The, the card is played is so versatile. Um, totally, it's the nothing-but open-ended synergy. And because it can copy permanence, um, uh, makes it... Uh, a card that you can play in Atraxa or against Atraxa or against really anything because you're just copying the best thing on the board whenever you cast this thing. Very reasonably costed for that effect. It's reported in 18,000 decks on EDH Rec and foils have a nice steep ladder. Um, I don't think it's the kind of card that's at a tipping point per se other than that supply has been consistently draining from this kind of like slow steady demand from EDH players. But no reason whatsoever to hold off if you want one for yourself and if you want to stock a few away for when this pops off whether it's this week or six months from now you should be in decent shape yeah clever impersonator was identified during con spoilers is a really cool card that would be popular for edh and i'm pretty confident cliff targeted this way back i have probably written about it once at least once um you know, I think you probably could have bought in, sold, and now it might be time to buy. Really, time to buy in again, um, because with all the planeswalkers coming back out, it is more interesting now than it was before. So, I'm on board with with that. The funny thing is, when it was first revealed, it started high. It was one of these mythics that started in like the twenty dollar range, and then quickly fell down to nothing, and has basically sat in that three to four dollar pocket for the better part of three years. So. And that's for the non-foils. The foils have slowly dried up over time because, again, foil mythics tend to do that. Um, a few years out from a set printing, you usually run into this situation where a card has been quietly good in a casual format like like Commander. And if it's a mythic, the foils are guarantee you are going to be facing this kind of ladder where there's like 5, 10, 15, 20 listings on TCG Player, maybe 100 copies across the internet. And once those are gone, it's waiting on a reprint before it becomes a thing. Well, especially because it's useful. It's not even like it's a foil mythic that didn't really have much application. Like it's a useful card um, that people can do something with. So that's definitely part of the reason you'd be seeing that supply wane. And now it just gets even better. Yeah. It's, these open-ended synergy cards just always get better. That, and yes. that's the thing. Yeah. And and this is the point that part of the know, reason we were making like earlier about the, the other side of the point about the narrow applications of certain feather cards. Um, and, you know, the, the point that Jason, I think, was trying to make um, on Twitter today when he was talking about how to use the stats for DH Rec, um, you know, focus on, on the cards that are adopted in the, at the highest percentage of usage in the situation where the color of your commander allows them to be, because that's the strongest indicator that the card is going to experience persistent demand for a long time. Yeah, which is a, a very fair way to to approach it, I think. Um, okay, so my first card this week, um, I went looking through Feather to see what else I could find. Feathers. I like uh, Sphinx Bone Wand from Rise of the Eldrazi. It's a little pricey uh, at, well, pricey at seven mana, a seven mana artifact. It'll cost you about four bucks to pick up foils. Sphinx Bone Wand is a... Uh, high mana cost artifact that whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, put a charge counter on the wand, and then when you do, it deals damage equal to the number of counters to a creature or player. So you cast one instant or sorcery, 
you deal one damage. You cast a second one, you do two damage. You cast a third one, it deals three damage. And this builds up over time. So it's kind of like, you imagine like a rod that's vibrating harder and harder the more spells you cast. It's just getting more powerful. Um, and if nobody answers this, this will end the game very quickly. Because if you manage to get back two or three spells a turn with Feather, this thing is going to start blasting people for six, eight, 10, 15 damage pretty fast. Um, now, I would have gone with non-foils, except for the fact that it was reprinted in Is It versus Golgari, and with that printing, the supply is just too deep at this point. But the foils are real low supply, so I'm definitely a fan of getting in on those. Uh, and again, they're about 4 bucks right now. Uh, I think this is yeah, $10 is a nice, a nice, easy plateau, and supply is pretty constrained already. And I don't think people have gotten to this yet. I don't think, anyways. I question whether seven mana artifacts or what the feather deck is going to do. It's the same conversation we were having earlier about how many win more slots are there. Um, and I just don't know what the answer is going to be. My concern, having looked through the existing feathers list on EDA track, is that people are very drawn to the spell suite, but they forgot that it requires other cards. Like, what does your deck do if feather isn't in play? What does your deck do if you can't cast Feather because it's too expensive or it gets oblivion, like, you know, pacified? It's just your deck's got to do more than just play around that commander or else or at least you want to build it that way. Um, Monastery and Mentor and Pir uh, Young Pyromancer are good choices, but, you know, it's 99 cards. You got to have some other stuff to do. So I agree that it seems like it's kind of expensive, but it just gives the deck more strength that like it's going to need and i and i get that it's not showing up yet and i think that it's just something that people will come to eventually when they play the deck and they go oh i gotta have something else to be doing here we're in agreement that you pick up like max a couple of these right oh yeah yeah I mean, you know any of these edh specs right like you don't want to own 40 of them for the most part well i mean i want 40 smothering tithe i'm happy to own more than that but this is the kind of that's a this is very specific. exception to the rule Yes, correct. All right. Um, so my other pick this week is Audric Lunark Marshall, um, a card that was completely off my radar until a random listener contacted me and pointed out that this had a nice steep ladder. They were very proud of themselves for identifying the same kind of ladders we always talk about, and I thought it was kind of cool um, that they were pointing this out. So it's not really my pick, but I did a little research on it and figured out that, yeah, they're probably right. Um, this is probably under the radar for a lot of people. Um, it was in Shadows over Innistrad, single printing for the foils. And the key here is that this is very useful in uh, Atraxa, for one, because basically what Audric does is he lets your creatures share all of their keywords. So um, with Atraxa having flying uh, uh, double strike, first strike, lifelink, vigilance, does that sound right? Uh, attracts. I don't even know, man. You're the one that plays it's her. It's my own commander. I, I never attack with her or do anything with her <laughs> other than use her proliferate. It's flying, vigilance, death touch, lifelink, not double strike. Um, yeah, so basically that gives it to all your creatures. So in attracts of planeswalkers, that's not really a thing I would run, but in attracts of creatures, and keep in mind that um, War of the Spark is giving us a whole bunch of new tools for the like counters strategy. And truly, in the last couple of years, we've gotten a plethora of like counters on creatures-based cards that make give you almost a, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to building, uh, you know, creature counters-based version of Atraxa. 
And Audric's a nice little utility slot to put in there that can end up kind of fulfilling your like creator hoof behemoth rule. It can turn your you slap it down and immediately all of your creatures might have all of the abilities of Atraxa and might be just able to alpha strike somebody immediately. Yeah, this is a cool effect, and I actually have a friend who plays as General, and it is a surprisingly effective card. If you don't have the Wrath, uh, you're just screwed, and even if you do, sometimes it's um, uh, resilient enough that it's not an issue. It also is going to be great with Feathers, because even though she just has Flying, um, if you're casting stuff like that, what was it, this uh, Psychotic Fury to give her Double Strike and like one or two other spells... Um, and then you go to combat and suddenly all of your creatures have all of those abilities. Uh, you just got a lot of, uh, a lot of use out of those spells by, uh, propagating the effects across. So I definitely am a fan of that component. And the nice thing here is it's a rare, not a mythic, but foils are only $4. I think that, and there's a short enough supply that it's pretty likely that in the next few months, whether or not, um, we target this card. It was still going to edge up into six, eight, ten dollars. But if people chomp on twenty or thirty copies across the internet, they're just going to disappear and post up over ten. And this is a card that could easily see a reprint at some point. But it was—it's only a few years old, so that could be anywhere between now and ten years from now. And it's not the kind of card that's going to be um, a huge priority. I could easily see it showing up, the non-foils showing up in a commander deck um, in some fall product. And if that's the case then the foils will be safe for that much longer. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, I like it. I think it's a fun card. Uh, shout out to the listener, whose name we won't reveal. <laughs> uh-huh. I just don't have it handy. <laughs> I would love to give credit where credit is due, and I'll try to do that next week if I find it. I know. I'm just teasing him because uh, <laughs> I, I don't know it either. Um, my other card this week is uh, Authority of the Consoles. This is the uh, the other blind obedience uh, foils in Kaladesh are about three bucks right now. Supply on this again is fair, quite limited. I think there are only maybe 10, 15 copies. I think uh, this is in over 10,000 EDH decks. It's a one mana enchantment that makes all your creatures op- opponents control come into play tapped, which screws up their haste and also screws up their blocking. And whenever creature anyone puts in the play whenever anyone else puts a creature in the play you gain a life so if your opponents all play you know a creature or two a turn you gain like three to six life on a rotation which is not an insignificant amount of life and then if they do anything dumb like make infinite tokens or whatever you gain a lot of life um and if you have any other spells of course a trigger off gaining life or any other cards like a johnny's pride mate or anything like that it does a lot for you so it does a really does a lot for one mana and i gotta tell you if you've never put one of these types of cards in your deck like a blind obedience or authority of the consoles or the creature who does it it's a lot connor guard or something from ixalan there are a couple different effects if you never put one of these in your edh deck before and you have the slot um or you have the colors you should give it a shot you'd be surprised at how effective this this is a lot of work yeah you you don't really appreciate it until you see it and you're like damn this really does do a lot for me um but anyways, foils are three bucks. There's not a lot out there. I think this is an easy cost up to like $8. These are the kind of utility cards that provide incremental value that never really threatens the table. And so it rarely catches point removal. So if somebody casts like a Chroma's Vengeance a or command. a Stair Command or something, then yeah, you take you take the hit. But if they're trying to decide what to target with their whatever, Assassin's Trophy, it's, it's not going to be this. 
No, no, basically never, unless you're set to kill people with it, but that's unlikely too. So the supply here is pretty deep. It's going to take a while for these to drain out, but foils are probably safe from a reprint for a while, and buy lists is already at like $3 credit from our friends at, you know, Cool Stuff, Card Kingdom, Abu, etc. Oh, did I get the supplies on these mixed up? Hold on, let me go back and look. I won't believe until I There's like 30 listings or something for the foils. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, I'm sorry. I was thinking of the other of us, Sphinx. Yeah, I mean, that's not... So this is, like, not going to sell out overnight, but that's pretty limited, right? Because there's, like, what, 40-ish? 40, 40 to 50 actual copies on TCG Player, but, I mean, that's one person a state. If one person in each state in the country buys this, TCG Player's out. I, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I see this, there's a lot of, like, really good high return uh, action going on these days. So these kind of like longer term specs are perfect if you're just trying to build your collection up at like cheapest possible price. Like these aren't going to get any cheaper. Um, your buy list back so you can always trade it in anytime you want and give it a year or something. Like if you're more of a casual speculator, you like to fire, forget, hold for on a six to 12 month period and you're comfortable with that. And that's the kind of return you're you're looking to based on how much time you have available. This is perfect. Like I would I would happily if I was in that if that was my MO currently. I would happily take 20 or 30 of these, put them away, and check back 12 months later. In the meantime, can I just tell you how annoying it is that my foil, foil blind obediences haven't really paid off either? <laughs> they're like they're like profitable, but not enough that I really feel the need to sell them. And that's a very annoying. <laughs> and the thing is, like, I, I actually sold a bunch of stuff this week at zero profit. Because I realized that... Well, not a bunch. I, I made a few deals. Like I sold uh, four expedition overgrown tombs where my profit was like 4% or something that I picked up like last year. And the reason I did that was because there was two opportunities that are so good in the short term um, that they should probably be discussed here. One of them was that Walmart had listed Commander 2016 decks on their website at forty less than $40. It was $40 shipped. It was basically like 37 plus a little bit of taxes depending on where you live probably about 40 bucks a deck and if you're familiar with the commander 2016 decks we're talking about Atraxa and brea two of the top five commanders of all time and saskia which is uh, a deck which is suddenly worth more than everything but Atraxa in terms of its component cards because it holds a whole bunch of feather specs um now those decks are a lot less exciting in Japanese because you can't buy list them easily. So, for instance, I talked to a buyer at uh, Abu Games today and was to you know asking whether they would take these Japanese decks on, and they said, "Yeah, but like we might only give fifty or sixty percent of buy list value." Thing is, the decks are worth like a hundred and hundred to one hundred and sixty dollars component wise. Buy list might be a hundred to one hundred and twenty. If you're getting sixty percent of that, you might still be getting sixty or seventy dollars and only paying forty. So they could still be a good buy. They had Atraxas. Um, to test this out, I ordered four Japanese Atraxas. And lo and behold, a few days later, English copies of uh, Breed Lethality showed up, which is the Atraxa deck, which is selling retail for like $200. I think Abu is offering 180 in credit on those. So that's like 120 street value after you convert from their funny money. Um, that's a triple up for zero work. That's so dumb. Yeah. So now I've got twenty five more decks inbound from Walmart, and 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 a bunch of the a bunch of the pro traders have also ordered. Most of the people have reported that most of the stuff they've gotten has been Japanese. So we'll see if mine shows up the same. And then the question becomes: Well, do I do the buy list thing with the Japanese copies 
Or do I just return it all, get my money back immediately, and plow it into Mythic Edition 3, which I guarantee you is about to be announced? Yeah, well, I mean, we're like virtually 100% positive, as positive as you can be short of Wizards having put it on their domain that Mythic Edition 3 is coming because Gideon that was part of that Planeswalker leak like two weeks ago was in the Mythic Edition border. Um, I mean, that's pretty disgusting if you get English copies. My guess is you won't. You guys are also all going to collapse the buy lists. Yep. Um, especially on those foreign copies yep. because they might be interested in like five, ten copies of Geno Japanese Atraxa. They probably don't want 70. Yep. Um, because and there's and really you don't you don't have to look very far to figure this out and I'm not telling you this of course I'm telling the variety of our listeners but you know you can go and look at some of these cards really any EDH staple and you'll find that the cheapest English price is seven bucks and it's dotted supply up to like fifteen but there's thirty Japanese copies sitting at three ninety nine and they just sit there uh and it's not to say they don't sell i have sold a fair share of japanese edh cards but you know those types of stuff there's just much lower demand and i think i mentioned it on cast before that i really enjoyed the foreign cards in my edh decks i think they're very cool but a while ago after um, maybe i didn't do this on cast maybe i did this in person uh i told the story whatever i'm gonna tell it again because you all pay to listen to it and that's what i get to do um I was going through and just picking out EDH cards from Almond Cat uh, to add to my deck or to, to buy when I was placing an order just to kind of put in my EDH binder, have available to me when I want them. Uh, and all the Japanese copies were cheaper. So I was like, oh, this is great. I can get Japanese foils for barely any more than an English non-foil cost. They look cool. Great. Well, I get them in and I didn't really play a lot of Almond Cat and all the other Japanese foils I have. I know all of those cards. But then I look down at this pile of artifacts that I haven't seen in two months now. And I'm like, huh, what's, I have a vague idea of what this card does, <laughs> what's that card do? but like, yeah, I don't have this memorized like I do like Seedborn Muse or Palancron. And I'm like, uh, suddenly it is crystal clear why the Japanese and other foreign cards don't sell as well for EDH, because if you haven't memorized them, it is a pain yeah. in the ass. And here's the real fun part. Look that up. <laughs> You're like, you don't even know what to type in the scryfall. You have to go, you have to look at the set symbol, then search on the set symbol and the card type, and then find the card to get the name. Like, so it is, I, I, I give, I, I now understand the struggle of these types of guys who will pay more for the English copy because it is obnoxious. Yeah, and and the last thing you want to be doing, especially if your playgroup is full of like relatively new players, is forcing people to look things up and read things and memorize things on the table that they can't read. So I definitely have, like my Atraxa deck is tricked out with Russian foils and whatever, but that's what I pull out to play with experienced EDH people. And I tend to only play Russian copies of cards that everybody will intuitively know what they do. I'm not going to play some uh, some deck full of obscure cards where nobody knows any of the text on them and play it in in a foreign <laughs> language. However, uh, the the fun wait just the funny part there being that if you do that with the planes with the tracks of planeswalkers, I will know some of those planeswalkers, but I bet dollars to donuts you've got a couple on there that people can't name all three abilities. Yeah, it's, it's true, but I mean, I, mostly I focus on stuff like you know Russian foil chain veil, like nobody really needs to read yeah. it too closely, the um, or paradox engine or whatever. The, um, yeah. well, not in that deck, but I do have that card in Brea. So, um, yeah, the Walmart decks are worth a look, especially if you like Japanese cards, or you just want to get cheap access to some of these decks. You know, like if you, if you, if you know the cards well, and you just, you just, for 40 bucks, the value is crazy, right? Because these decks aren't going to get any cheaper as time goes on. Some of them, like a, like a, a 
Atraxa specifically, has already seen a reprint in an anthology last year. So the odds of that deck getting reprinted again soon, zero. Like it literally just got a reprint and it's been printed twice now. So it's only going to keep going up. And I would say that the Saskia deck and the Brea deck are both equally well positioned, uh, even if they show up in Japanese. So you probably have an out. And if you don't like it, you just return it on the spot. You know, it's Walmart return policy. So speaking of Brea, that's my final pick this week. Um, Brea Ethereum Shaper, I think I originally called it $4. And I think I buy listed most of mine for about 10 bucks in January. But I still have a small pile left. Um, and I was checking up on it shortly ago and realized, okay, this is a tipping point ramp. Like this is Brea. What's, what happened to Atrax is going to happen to Brea. Brea is one of the top five commanders of all time. Um, War of the Spark has tons of good Atraxa cards, but it also has a ton of good uh, Artifacts Matters cards. Uh, we've got a lot of cool Artifacts Matters cards recently, including the Buy Box Tezzeret that's associated with the War Booster Boxes, um, Psy Master Thopterist from the Core Set last summer, and all sorts of stuff that's popped up in between. And Brea, you can pick up at around $10 to $12 right now, depending on where you're getting it, what kind of coupon you're using. Um, it's a shoe in within the year to hit 20 to 25 It's just a slam dunk. Yeah, uh, can't argue with that. I mean, it's obscenely popular. It's going to keep being popular. That's not going to change. Um, yeah, hard, hard to hard to argue with that. Two caveats. Uh, generally speaking, you know, Jason Alt will tell you, don't go after the commander, go after the cards that all of the commanders use simultaneously. That's true. Um, but mm-hmm. when it's one of the most popular commanders of all time and the supply is already drained, you're in a different boat. The second pro- problem is that if we're get- I'm not clear on whether we're getting an anthology set this summer and if we are brea would be a shoe in to be included and if she does get included Mm. the question becomes will you have a window in between now and that announcement uh i mean you'll have like a couple weeks right their lead time on those is not all that long so i don't know how deep you want to be on brea really but the buy list uh on it is already depending on who you're dealing with somewhere in this like six seven eight dollar range so there's not a whole lot of risk to taking on some ten to twelve dollar copies and significant upside if people start building a few more brea decks based on all the tasty tezzeret related cards yeah i could see grabbing like three you know three to six of these now and then once the anthology spoilers like once you clear that spoiler period and you're safe again from september to like what march or april like then you can double dip type of thing yeah that sounds about right i gotta tell you i went looking for oh shoot what did i dig into my artifacts for we talked about an artifact earlier and i don't remember oh serum powders (laughs) it has been a profitable last 45 minutes really what'd you (laughs) find i just found i just well i think i think i found 40 sunforgers because <laughs> I spe- I specced on that at one point. Nice. Uh, and then it got reprinted. I found like 15 Nim Death Mantles. Uh, I found a playset of Serum Powders, some Enchanted Evenings. It the Betrays is like $12 again. Uh, giant pile of stuff on uh, buy list at the GP Niagara. So it's a good cast. This is a good cast. So if we're humble bragging, which appeals to some and not others, um, I there's a little experiment I, was, I ran on Twitter the last couple of weeks. Instead of posting stuff for sale, I just said, what do you need? I want to sell this much in this much time. So typically something like, I want to sell $500 in an hour. And both times, uh, the first time I doubled it, the second time I sold almost $3,000 in cards. 
Because one of them was a, a workshop. The Mishra's were You see, I the the oh, Mishra's workshop that I originally got on Puka Trade of all places three years ago at eight hundred dollars in trade value. When believe it or not, people will sit, were sending cards out like that and sold it to a lovely listener for seventeen hundred or so. That's pretty. Uh, that's pretty nice. I, I I'm surprised that you have the bench to do that. Like, I, if I posted that, mm-hmm. most of the cards people are going to ask for, like, oh, do you have this, do you have this? I'm probably going to say no, because I don't have that wide of a, a, a array, right? Like, I, that's part of the, if you run a store, sure. But, you know, I've got, what, 150 different unique cards, maybe 200 floating around, and half of them I don't want to sell yet anyways. The, the hit rate's something like, I'm going to guess somewhere between 40 and 50%. Edging probably closer to 40. Like, certainly, like, people threw stuff out there, and I had to say politely, I don't have it. However, that became an opportunity to introduce them to some other pro trader. I mean, one of the benefits of being in our pro trader Discord is that we have a buy-sell-trade thread, which is very, very active, deals going on all the time, Um, whether it's European arbitrage deals or just people um, unloading specs cheaply to one another or just, you know, unloading random stuff. And... Um, a few times this month already, I've wanted to sell, say, a playset of Mox Amber, and I have three copies left of, say, foils, and I want to make a fourth for somebody that asked me for it. I can just dip into the Pro Trader Discord, ask somebody to back the rest of the play. I send out one package with three copies. The other guy sends out one. Um, a couple times, I just oversold. Like, somebody asked me for something. I said, oh, yeah, I probably have that. And then I checked, and I was like, oh, no, I'm sold out. And I just passed that sale to somebody else. So it ended up like connecting a handful of deals for the pro traders. Um, And then a couple of them were just like super hits. Like somebody wanted like four expeditions and then this other guy wanted a Mishra's workshop and boom, like that built my war chest for mythic edition three. And which I I spent a pile of money on the commander decks while the getting was good. Well, which is really awesome. Uh, First of all, I am kind of amused that like some guys just sitting in front of his computer and then you're like, hey, if anyone wants to buy a magic card, tell me what you want. And this dude looks at that message and goes, huh, you know what? I do want to spend $3,000 on Well, $1,700, sure, but yes. $1,700. And then messages you and says, yeah, I would buy one. <laughs> like, or like, yeah, I would buy a play set of Expedition Scalding Tarns. Like, what were you waiting for? Why were you just like, well, I can answer. <laughs> how did you like come to the decision that you wanted this and then just like not do it at some I, point? I, I can I answer the question. So... Uh, what everybody's looking for in social media uh, buy sell trade they're looking for a deal if as long as you're willing to commit to a minimum you know 10% below tcg uh near mint and people will say tcg low i don't use that stat cuz i think it's nonsense but i will definitely if something is $100 the lowest price near mint copy i will definitely give it to you for 90 cuz you're saving me on the fees so it's no skin off my nose um yeah. if it's like a reserveless card like a workshop it's a little like i might not go full 10%, but I'll definitely give you a discount. Workshops in particular are listed these days between 2,000 and 3,000, but deals have closed as low as 14 or 1,500 on eBay. So there's a pretty wide range. It's very negotiable. Mine was a very nice near mint copy, but I'm looking at Walmart decks plus Mythic Edition, which are double ups, triple ups. You know, I, I'm not, I don't consider any of my reserve list cards precious. And I've been telling people if there was ever a season where you want to go out of reserve list cards, out, make your money, like, add a big chunk 
to your principal and then pull it back in and you could redirect it to an even better reserve list card, now is that time. This spring has been perfect for that scenario because it's been Magic's doing very well in general. There is a definitely it's definitely a seller's market for a lot of different stuff. Um, and you know, if you're holding, say, a playset of Scalding Tarn or something and you're not using it, and you're wondering where you're gonna get your money for your mythic edition boxes so you can make <clears throat> hopefully flip those for a decent profit really like take a look do you have masterpieces sitting around expeditions invocations uh some reserve list stuff something that is might go up a little bit this year but probably isn't going to go up a lot because it's already at its plateau and like it's it's hitting it's bumping up against its ceiling think about getting out of that stuff and into some of these really great specs and then maneuver back into position on the other stuff if that's what you want to do yeah, yeah. I, I will tell you that this has been, a, 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 I don't want to say frustrating, but, you know, we have to pay closing costs on our house in, you know, two to three yeah. weeks, which Knocks is you into the no, no small chunk of change, let me tell you. Um, so just to give our listeners, a, you know, it's easy. So I, I, this, my experience with this has been similar to my experience with paying for a wedding. As you know, weddings are expensive, but then it actually comes time to have one and put your you know, rubber to the floor and you're like, damn, I actually have to come up with this money. I've heard, you know, they're expensive, but I have to have that money. Houses are the same deal. So let's say, for instance, that you buy a $300,000 house, which is cheap if you are in one of the major cities in the U.S. and a decent house if you live someplace, um, you know, in a normal, you know, 50 to 100th most populated cities in America. 300 grand is a nice house, but it's not a mansion. Uh, if you put you know, ideally you want to put 20% down, that's $60,000, but you have to pay closing costs, which is probably about 10 to 15,000 more maybe. So you're looking at like $75,000. That means you have to take $75,000 out of your pocket. Like your loan doesn't give you that to your mortgage doesn't cover that. That is money you have to put forward. So I think for anyone who hasn't like actually thought about buying a house, like keep this in mind that that is money that you actually have to pay. Yeah. Um, your mortgage, you know, your, your bank loan doesn't cover <clears> that. Uh, so it plus, and if there's anything you want to do the house afterwards, like, right, like you're moving in, but like our house needs some work. So we're going to, you know, we want to do some work on the cabinets, the counters, the floor, some lighting, all that adds up too. Um, so it's a huge chunk of change. So I have had to sit on the sidelines for a couple of weeks now, because even though the returns on this stuff are going to be good the time i need the time frame just not fast enough right i need to hold on to the money because i need it in a couple weeks and i can't be risking it at the moment uh and it's like it has been frustrating to watch and because it's a finance podcast i feel that i should tell this to you guys as well because i did not know this and we didn't find this out despite all the reading i did i never encountered this and i was kind of annoyed that i never heard about this if you are in a position where you might buy a house in the next five years, you should call up your bank and ask them if they have one of these uh, like savings accounts for home ownership. And I don't remember what the term was, but the basic idea is that it's sort of like a 401k where you pay, you put money into the savings account and your bank matches the funds that you put into the savings account. And then you can use that towards the purchase of a house. And the idea is that you can show that you're able to consistently make payments, right? Um, like to keep up with a mortgage so they feel like you're a safe buyer. Uh, but like the one bank that I talked to here said that you could, they would match up to like seven grand. It's so like $7,000 free dollars, which again, very relevant. 
at the time of closing. But like you have to have been doing it for, again, in this bank's case, like a minimum of 10 months. So we couldn't just open the savings account, fire seven grand at it and get seven grand back. You have to do it for seven months over 10 months in a row. So if you're on any time frame between a year and 10 years, you might want to look into that because you'll be very happy that you did. Yeah. I mean, nothing makes you feel like you are adulting harder than dealing with the purchase of a home. Oh, shit, yeah, gets, shit gets real in a hurry. It hasn't, I, I will tell you, it hasn't been like challenging or difficult or anything like that, but it is, it is expensive and it's definitely a lot of like phone call, phone call, phone call, phone call, phone call. Think about this. It's, it's annoying. It's annoying. All right. And and admittedly, it has been easy for us. Fair. So on to the metagame we can review. GP Sao Paulo. Uh, again, one of these modern tournaments that feels like it's a bit of a lame duck in the sense that the London Mulligan rule um, in, in London, <laughs> obviously, um, is going to upset the apple cart. And it's going to be a little weird because they're not allowed to play with any of the War of the Spark cards there. Uh, don't even get it started on the whole drafting cards nobody's seen before thing. Um, all of which is going to make for a very awkward tournament, in my opinion. Um, but over in Brazil, we had a pretty standard top eight. Tron, Humans, Boggles, making an, one of its occasional appearances. Boggle. Um, humans, Burn, Two Is It Phoenix, and a Valakut deck running Primeval Titans. Yeah, some nifty decks here. Um, I guess, you know, it's been a while since we've seen Boggles uh, make top eight, but it's going to pop up every now and then. I saw Frank Carson comment that the new card, uh, whose name I don't recall from War of the Spark, like the two mana, two one, who is a mana dork, but has hexproof as long as it's untapped, is another pseudo Boggle, which will be interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, really all you're looking at here is that these cards exist, or these decks exist. They're kind of nifty. Uh, but uh, with horizons on the horizon, we don't know how much any of it's going to matter. Yeah, I mean, we've talked before about how I, I think Tron is going to catch some hate in horizons. Um, yeah, I, I, I think humans has a chance at getting some pieces. Just it's hard to avoid printing some in a set that big. Um, but they'll probably veer towards other tribes, as we've outlined in the past. Notable that Burn is still seems to be running the full complement of Skewer the Critics and a couple of Light the Stage, so some Russian foils I have of those look pretty good. Um, and uh, I think we've talked about Primeval Titan not too long ago. Um, the number of different builds in Modern that seem to think Titan is the right finisher um, between Amulet Titan and the Valakut decks, uh, Scapeshift builds, etc., uh, suggests to me that this card's got some some room to grow. Yeah, Primeval Titan would have been an insane pick if they didn't print it like nine times, which slowed down its relevancy or its potential as a as a pick pretty hard because they ran that back a couple times. But now it's been a little while since that's been uh, that's been back to the printer shop, so it, it we're probably finally around the point that it's definitely a strong consideration. Um, it, whereas it was a much longer hold prior to that. Yeah. All right, so to wrap things up, we're going to head on over to the latest in War of the Spark previews. I think everybody is pretty pleased with how this set is panning out. There is a lot of power, a lot of interesting cards. Um, people seem to be pretty stoked about the way that the narrative has been uh, revealed a step at a time in the way that they've done the spoiler season. 
and you know lots of great cards uh, to discuss. Let's go ahead and dive in on Nicol Bolas Dragon God. This is notable because it was the card that I was shown almost two months ago, if not more than that actually, um, that I reported to Wizards and never heard back about. So apparently they were not too concerned. Um, but it was the first indication we had that uh, our suspicions that War of the Spark was about Planeswalkers was definitely confirmed because obviously that means I saw the static ability on Bolas, which states uh, that he has all the loyalty abilities of all other Planeswalkers on the battlefield. For loyalty, blue, triple black, red, plus one, you draw a card and then each opponent exiles a card from their hand or a permanent they control. Minus three, destroy target creature or Planeswalker. Minus eight, each opponent who doesn't control a legendary creature or planeswalker loses the game. Yeah, now, uh, for whatever this is worth, and I mean, I imagine any of our critics will consider it to be nothing. Um, and James actually called me uh, when he had this spoiler, so I don't even have like text logs. <laughs> and I don't, again, you'd have to go to Verizon to get my <laughs> cell phone logs. Um, did call me and tell me word for word this card. Uh, really what we should have done, and now that I think about it, James, we should have, like, created a dummy Twitter account and just, like, tweeted this card, but just ne- never told anyone that it existed. And then when it came to fruition, you could have been like, look at this tweet that was sent from this account two months ago. See, I think it's 0% important that I knew this card, because it's not like I did anything to get that. Somebody just up and showed it to me, some random, well, like, random individual. However, I, I think it's in, I think it's important for people to know that leaks are not plugged, that information still circulates, and that anybody who tells you otherwise is not being truthful or doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, well, I want to I want to highlight that this is not a matter of having proven you were right for the sake of the satisfaction of having been right, but rather merely to set precedent that like you might want to consider what I say as being reasonable. Sure. Right. Oh, yeah, I definitely. <laughs> we i know it is difficult to get you to speak well of what the things you have done and the things you know you're you're a very humble man <laughs> but it does but it is at least uh worthwhile knowledge i guess for our listeners <laughs> uh if we say it you can believe it we don't hype we don't we don't hype <laughs> shit for no reason <laughs> <laughs> I'll admit to that. Um, the, I, but I really think the important part here is to understand that information circulates. And this, this, isn't, yeah. this yeah. isn't even the only thing that has come across our desk from a completely different, like three other things in the last couple of weeks from completely different angles, completely different sources. Uh, information is out there. So there are that information floats above the average player and they maybe like to believe that other people don't have an information advantage, but they do, and they probably always have. And just as we connect with more and more people in the industry, we are getting more of a taste of what goes on. Um, so what does that mean that you should do? Um, or what is actionable out of that as a player? You should just keep your ear to the ground. Um, you know, pay attention to the various uh, ideas, rumors, whispers that people share. And then you, you, you go through the difficult uh, process of trying to decide what's real, what's not, because there's plenty of BS out there. Um, however, getting back to Nicol Bolas, um, I think that it's unfortunate you can't make him a commander yet. 
Um, but I think some players will probably be motivate more motivated to build Nicobolas themed EDH decks because there's a preponderance of cool cards um, that all add up to a pretty fun deck. Um, you can basically play like Bolas Planeswalkers or like Bolas Control built around Nicobolas the Ravager um, from the core set last summer, which is already a fairly popular EDH card. And throw in all the different versions of Bolas and a whole bunch of the cool cards that they printed. Um, in standard, there's some, like, we might have a Grixis control shell here because you have Jace Cunning Castaway and some other Planeswalkers that can fill in the early game. Tons of, like, good, uh, control spells and kill spells, things like Bedevil. And then you've got, like, the Elder spell, um, the sorcery for two black that blew people away with how kind of ridiculous the text reads. Destroy any number of target Planeswalkers. Choose a Planeswalker you control, put two loyalty canters on it for each Planeswalker destroyed this way. So imagine a mid-game in Standard where they have a Planeswalker and you have a Planeswalker. And you can't, you have, you've just dropped Nicol Bolas. The turn after you Elders, you, maybe you canter some, well, you probably don't have any mana left. But let's just say the turn after that, for what, you manage to keep everything on the table and you Elder Spell. You kill their Planeswalker and your Planeswalker, and Bolas goes to 8, and then each opponent who doesn't control a legendary creature or Planeswalker loses the game on the spot. <laughs> because That'd be uh, a wild play, I'll give you because that. Because the Elder spell is giving Bolas 4 loyalty counters if it kills two other Planeswalkers. And Cunning Castaway makes copies of himself, and Bolas can borrow that, so there's a combo there anyway. Um... There's also, like, they re- they revealed that really fantastic Seb McKinnon art for Deliver Unto Evil, which everybody was gaga about today. Um, two and a black sorcery. Choose up to four target cards in your graveyard. And if you control a Bolas Planeswalker, return those cards to your hand. Otherwise, an opponent chooses two of them. You leave the chosen cards behind, and you get the worst two. And then you exile it. That's a pretty busted card in your Bolas EDH deck. <laughs> four cards back um, for three yeah that's solid i i will i will level with you even at the time that you told this card to me i was i don't know if underwhelmed is the right word but it the static text of the ability of all planeswalkers sounds awesome but in practice probably doesn't do as much as you ever want it to sure. because why are there that many planeswalkers in play um and his abilities are all solid Right, his uh, uh, but it's expensive to play. So his abil- his abilities are good, but he's just you know the the mana cost is prohibitive. So I actually don't think as cool as the card is that it's going to be that big of a deal um, in any format. Now, there's always room for standard to sh- be shaped in such a way that it matters a lot more than I would expect. Um, we get some weird standard formats, but that's just kind of my read of the card at the moment. I guess I just don't expect it to do, excuse me, too much. Here, here's the thing that the in, mana the is fine for, to support this casting cost right now because of all the shocks we have and duels. Um, and he's essentially a three for one, right? He comes with four loyalty, his plus one, you get a card. And they lose a card, either from their hand or a permanent they control. So they either you probably either destroy a land and draw a card on his plus one, or um, they exile a card from their hand, which prohibits some graveyard shenanigans. It's nice that it exiles. And you're left with a, plus, uh, a five loyalty planeswalker that threatens to end the game if they don't deal with it. So it eats up their next attack phase, or eats their bedevil, or whatever. So you kill... you. 
you got rid of a card in their hand, maybe you got a land, and they had to waste a, kill, uh, a, a spell or an attack base to get rid of him, that seems good enough for standard. I mean, who knows what this, this, how this standard will shape up, but I'd be very surprised if we don't get a Nicol Bolas-themed Grixis deck, because I feel like they're just shoving all the tools right in our face. Well, so, I mean, he's definitely not bad, and I don't want to paint that picture. I think he's very reasonable, um, just for the uh, the sequence of play you outline. You cast him on five, he ticks up, you draw a card, they're going to exile a card from their hand almost certainly. Um, and then they have to face a five loyalty planeswalker. Uh, they probably attack him down. They might, if they you know if they don't kill him, you're probably plus one in him again. So the play pattern is pretty solid. I'm not questioning that at all. Um, he works. He works. I guess I just don't. I don't look at him and see like Teferi. Although to be fair, I wasn't really blown away by Teferi either. I don't think. Or he's not like Jace. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Here he looks. He looks cool. He looks. I, I, can we both agree? Foils are going to be bonkers. But this is probably like the Ravager, yes, right? Like the foils yeah. are just going to go through the roof and stay there and never come down, even if he doesn't see play standard. It'll be like Ravager, where it just the foils just float high and stay there forever, and it's hard to make money on them. Ravager? Nicol Bolas the Ravager from last summer. The 4-4 that flips oh, into oh, a Planeswalker. Oh. His foils are like yeah. $40, $50, $60 or something, and he's hardly seeing any play. Yeah. Just yeah. on the EDH uh, demand alone. Yeah, that's not this, it's exactly what's going to happen here. Sure. So the other the other planeswalker that caught my attention that might be uh, underestimated is Sarkin the Masterless. Three double red. Whenever a creature attacks you or a planeswalker you control, each dragon you control does one point of damage to that creature. That's a pretty specific, weird, not-so-powerful ability. But plus one until end of turn, each planeswalker you control becomes a 4-4 red dragon and gains flying. That ability is probably going to get underestimated. Yeah, that is a funky that is a funky piece of text for sure. That he turns all of your other planeswalkers into four four dragons. And that's his plus one. That is that is odd. I mean, you have to have so many planeswalkers in play for that to be really relevant, but it does seem like I don't know. If you're playing like a planeswalker themed deck, your opponent has to be worried because that you could just kill them out of nowhere if they don't keep your planeswalker count in check. Basically, the play pattern they're implying is you minus three to create a 4-4 dragon creature with flying. So he defends himself. That puts him at two loyalty. If you can keep him alive for a turn, on the next turn, he can attack alongside the dragon um, for eight. And that's just if it's him on the table. If there's another planeswalker you played earlier, then you're in that situation. And if your deck mm-hmm. is like Jace Cunning Castaway into, into Sarkin or Nicol Bolas or whatever else, um, because there's plenty of other Planeswalkers to choose from in the three and four slot now. I don't know. This is only a rare, right? It's not a mythic. But uh, Yeah, I believe so. So it, I'd be more excited about it as a mythic, as a rare, eh, financially. Um, but I'm curious. I, I would not be surprised to see a deck form around this if there is a reason to have a preponderance of mid-game Planeswalkers that are looking for a way to go from controlling the board with their abilities to just attacking in the air for an alpha strike well it's possible that it could be built as a a planeswalker heavy deck that plays a bunch of the like uncommon and rares up the cycle up the mana cost it's mostly for their static abilities you know in the planeswalker deck and then this is the curve topper that just like sometimes you're just going to get to play him on turn six plus one him and swing with four other walkers in the air immediately 
Um, so that's possible. I will tell you, if you want to talk about mythics that caught her eye, that Oketra is legitimate. Uh, I will be, I, this is this, I think this has my vote for the best standard card in the set. Wow. And if the, if the pre-orders are lowish, this seems like a buy. So let me give you the text here. This is a five. It's translated to, because we don't have, I don't think this is the official spoiler. Um, it's five mana. It's white. It's three and two white. It's a, uh, three, six with double strike. So an effective six, six, five mana for six, six but 3-6 double strike. Whenever you cast a creature spell, put a 4-4 token in the play with Vigilance. So it comes down already pretty solid. Now, uh, she also has the other uh, God Eternal text where if you try and get rid of her, you can put it back on third from your library. So like you can't even really get get rid of it. It's just if it dies or is exiled, it's getting put back in. Um so she comes down, she's already basically a 6-6, six, six, which is going to be difficult for your opponent. You know, like, she has no protection, but she, you know, sort of a removal spell. She's very capable. But then you untap with her, and every other creature spell in your hand is the creature you have plus a 4-4 four, four token with Vigilance. And I mean, now, if you're playing, like, a smaller creature deck, and she's your curve topper, that means that she gives all of those small creatures that you like had to play early so much more strength in the late game. Because now you're two mana two two that you were able you want to play on turn two, but now it's turn six and it's too late for that to matter. Whoops, you get a four four that comes along with it. Like that is with, so with powerful. Vigilance. Yeah, yeah. And the vigilance is gonna matter too, because when you get into those late game situations where you're trying to look for opportunities to like attack but not die on the crackback, like that vigilance matters. I gotta tell you, this card is legitimate. And it's convenient that st- I think it's Oketra's monument from Amonket makes you white creature spells cost one less or something. Mm, so is that still legal? That's legal through the No no no, uh, no not legal here in EDH, because in EDH you oh. play it into an early god eternal Oketra. And then you can do something like White Mane Lion for one white apiece, bouncing it in and out of play, making 4-4 four, four zombies. Yeah, which is really nifty as well. I'm, I, I will tell you that she's she's nifty in most places, but I think that she could become a pillar of standard. That is my my guess here. And My best guess. And I think it's EDH plus standard, which means foils could take off in a hurry and stick. And at peak supply, you might be looking for an entry point. Yeah. I, I really think if, if you can pre-order this card for four or five bucks, it might be worth it. I think honestly. I think it's going to come up come out too high because I think it's going to be over. I think people are seeing the power. I've seen the white players in standard casting a arched eyebrow saying like, this isn't what our deck wants. So the question becomes, is there a different deck entirely? Like not a white weenie deck, but something else that's more mid-rangey that wants Oketra to just dominate the board in the late game. Yeah, I mean, maybe, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see the pre-orders be 15 or 20 bucks. I mean, it's a mythic. How many mythics do they put at $4? Um, but I, I don't know. That's just when I look through it, I'm like, damn, that is one legitimate card. So here's another cool Planeswalker that caught my eye. Um, and I thought this was interesting because it seems like the kind of card I would expect to have come out of Modern Horizons. Um, Ashiok Dream Render, one blue, black, blue, black. Mm-hmm. So three total. Legendary Planeswalker Ashiok, spells and abilities your opponents control can't cause their controller to search their library. No fetchy-fetchy for you. Minus one from five loyalty, target player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard, then exile each opponent's graveyard. 
So this is a three casting cost, Buster Graveyard, and you can't search anymore. That has broad implications for potential sideboard use in modern, right? Well, yeah. So on the EDH side of things, this card is amazingly obnoxious. Slides right into Atraxa. It is so obnoxious. It just turns off all of your search, like your fetch lands, your rampant growths, your sky shroud expanse, or whatever, your uh, like all of those land search abilities, any of your tooth and nails, all that crap gets turned off. Um, your equipment shit, like you don't realize how much you search for, but there's a it's, lot. It's instantly. Inst- and then it keeps exiling graveyards. Yeah, I mean, it like instantly neuters the graveyard in Moldrata. Yeah. And it just keeps doing it. It's not even like a one shot. It just keeps doing it. You have to answer this card. Like, this is just so obnoxious. Comes, comes in with five loyalty, but in Atraxa, of course, you get to proliferate all the time. Like, the balancing point they put on these uncommon planeswalkers is they never go up. But if you're proliferating, then you can get more usage out of them. And if you're playing this into a doubling season, for instance, this is dropping with 10 loyalty on it. So now, if anybody wants to deal with it, they got to waste a bunch of resources to get rid of it. Yeah. It is, it is amusing. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly how much car- weight it'll carry in standard. I think the anti-shuffle clause is a lot less relevant there. Same with the graveyard exiling. Um, so, I mean, it could become a sideboard card in standard and maybe a little bit of main deck, but in general, I don't think it's big there. It's curious in modern. Um, you're going to have to have a pretty specific metagame to want this because you generally want your graveyard hate to be very fast, and this isn't. Um, and stopping people from shuffling on turn three is also slower than you need it to be, but it's possible that a metagame emerges such that this is useful because it just covers a lot of bases. Also notable in this set, a lot of power at common. And I think a good example of that is Spark Harvest. One black sorcery as an additional cost to cast a spell, sacrifice a creature, or pay three black. So usually it's a three double black spell. Kill a creature or a planeswalker. That would be fine. The fact that if you want to, if you sack a little thing, you can get rid of them for one black is just incredible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the value is, is excellent there. If you have a creature that's become irrelevant or whatever, it does a lot of work for you for that one. And it, it, it also um, makes me wonder whether I would run a copy or two of this in black-white tokens in modern. I mean, not that that's a deck that's competitive right now, but assuming that Horizons is going to give that deck some tools, which it looks like it might... Um, it's sorcery speed, that's not great, but it destroys any creature, any planeswalker for one black, and all I have to give up is a Bitter Blossom token. Yeah, you figure it probably shares slots with Fatal Push. Yeah. Um, or a Path to know, Exile. It gives it, yeah, yeah, it gives you a, a way to answer planeswalkers um, and you know larger creatures. Uh, that's reasonable. You know what other card, by the way, I think my, my friend who won a Modern GP pointed out to me, and I mean, he's not the only one, it's just kind of he pulled me back around to it as a commence the end game, mm-hmm. which is this sats torrential gear Hulk. It's a six mana instant speed card that can't be countered. You draw two cards and then a mass X where X is a number of cards in your hand. Well, you've probably got between four and seven cards in your hand, especially after you drew two. So it is six mana instant speed can't be countered. Draw two cards, put a six, six in the play pretty reasonable right like that is a legitimate card like if you're playing control and your opponent either swings in with a team or they pass you you cast this suddenly you have a big fat body you drew some extra cards and they can't counter it that is that is a 
powerful fact. And it, it, it's a shame it's a rare because at Mythic, I would have been real curious to see if I could steal some of these. This card is also notable because it's carrying Noah Bradley art, which is currently up on eBay. Um, stunning art on this card. And 33 bids currently with nine days left. Current bid is 7,800 US dollars. Wow. I really didn't think the art was that good. I mean, the composition is cool. I'm not really impressed technically. <laughs> uh, okay. Mm. I don't know. I, I also don't have any love loss for Noah, but that's another conversation. Also um, interesting that we got a Oath card revealed, Oath of Kaya. Looks like the Gatewatch is not finished. Looks like they're getting some new members, um, or at least they weren't finished when they took some Oaths. Uh, this one's pretty good. One white-black, when Oath of Kaya enters the battlefield, it deals three damage to any target, and you gain three life. So apparently Lightning Helix is white-black. Whenever an opponent attacks a Planeswalker you control with one or more creatures, Oath of Kaya deals two damage to that player, and you gain two life. So... You have to have Planeswalkers for this to matter. But if you do, this does some work against aggro decks. Yeah, I mean, it's useful in the come into play ability to deal three damage, gain three life. We know that Lightning Helix has long been a staple, and that's a two mana instant for the same ability. Uh, so you're paying one more mana and it slows down. But A, it's in standard, and B, it's a bit of a rattlesnake, but... It's not probably not good enough for the most part, the rattlesnake component, because you don't get the shot creatures. It only deals damage to opponents. No, 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 so, no. It deals damage to any target. On the way in, yeah. but the the trigger after that, I'm saying, like if they attack oh, you, sure. like the rattlesnake part of this doesn't do quite as much as you want it to. So I don't know if it's enough to really keep people from attacking I'm not you. even sure that's the point. Like I think maybe in EDH that's the point, but... In a stand, from a standard perspective, this is just about getting a 10-point life swing for 3 mana against aggro. Uh, I mean, that's that, which is very solid. I'm not going to... Yeah, I think that's why you play this card in standard, is for the front half of that card. Well, I think it's, I think it's, I think sure. it's both halves. Like, you have to be playing a deck that has mid-range planeswalkers you're playing this into, and then you get the full benefit. And the, the downside, if they, you don't have any planeswalkers on the table at the time, is that they're going to take the full brunt of the assault. See, the thing is that, like, say you, I don't know why you're playing a Ashiok, but let's just say Ashiok ends up good in this deck. Then you played Ashiok into a board where aggro is threatening, is pressuring you. They're normally going to bypass Ashiok and go for your face, right? So they come in, they swing in for five, they've got you down to 11 or nine or eight or whatever it is on turn three or four. That's kind of a typical aggro pattern. And they ignored the Planeswalker you leaned into. Now you get to Oath of Kaya. Now you've killed one of their creatures, you've gone back up three life and set them back a turn. And if they attack if they attack the planeswalker that is now threatening to start establishing control, whichever one it is, Ashok's probably a bad example, um, then they gotta deal with this additional four point life swing. So that lets you us I'm assuming set up your game plan. Now whether the deck coalesces around this card, I have no idea. But on its face, a very good rate. Yeah, I think the front half is great. It's very solid. I'm unsold on the second half. Um, so probably the most dynamic EDH card revealed today has to be Casualties of War, right? Yeah, I, depending on your definition, how you want to apply dynamic to magic, yes. Two, two <laughs> black, two green. Choose one or more of the following. Destroy an artifact, a creature, an enchantment, a land, or a planeswalker. And unlike the very heavily played Decimate, 
You do not have to have all four targets for this to go off. That seems like a shoe in in every green black deck from here to eternity, right? Yeah, probably. That card is pretty sick. Uh, shame on you if you ever cast this and don't hit all five modes. Um, it is five, right? But uh, yeah, this card is pretty ludicrous in terms of how much value it gives you if you can pay if you if, if you hit all that. That is a cool card. It just does so does much cool work. This is a type of card that I see getting printed like four times in just like various like commander conspiracy type products. Probably not in foil too often, but they're just going to kind of keep sneaking it out. Fall there. like commander 2022, commander 2023 fall set or something. Yeah, I mean, I could even see it before that, honestly. Well, it's got two years. They're not going to they're not going to print it again in, in the first two years of well, well, it's still in standard, right? Yeah, I guess it's true. Well, it's in standard. It's not probably not. Well, a year and a half, I guess, because it rotates fall twenty twenty one, right? Yeah. No. Um, no fall twenty twenty. Uh next fall. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, are we talking about Ugin? Can we talk yeah, about Ugin? He's on Mythic spoiler. He's, he's, he's in on there Mythic for spoiler. days. Yeah, Ugin the Ineffable. Um, this he's six mana, four loyalty. His static ability, and this is the part that I think matters. Um, colorless cards cost two less. Um, just a flat cost reduction. His other abilities are plus one, you exile a card face down, and then you also gain a 2-2 creature. And when the creature dies, essentially, you get the card back. Um, so you basically, you for plus one, you create a 2-2 token, and then when it dies, you get to draw a card. Uh, and then his minus three is destroy a permanent that's at least one color, which is kind of nifty. Um, so like you can come down at six and zap something right away and leave them at one loyalty. The part of this that's interesting to me is the colorless spells you cast cost two less because now he's a pretty interesting enabler for combo decks. So look at something like Krark Clan Ironworks and how many cards in that deck cost more than two. It was Krark Clan Ironworks and Scrap Trawler costs three, but it's a flat reduction. So it's that means that like everything that costs two or less just comes into play for free. Um, and if you, when you have stuff like Iker Wellspring and Terrarian and, and cards like that, that you can chain those pretty hard. Um, so you can just, it feels like there might be a deck in modern where you just slam this and go off. Now you have stuff like Heartless Summoning, but that only applies to creatures. You have Cloud Key, but that's only one, not two. You have Semblance Anvil, but it requires you exile a card from your hand. And people have tried to make that work. So Ugin does some interesting stuff there. And he also might be playable in Tron as well. I'm not exactly sure. You would need a Tron expert to give you more insight into that, but he is going to make your follow-up Karns and Worm Coils cheaper and your your uh, Ulamogs. He is going to answer a very problematic permanent, so long as it's not an artifact. And you can come down and just put him the 5 loyalty, make a 2-2 blocker to help protect him, and if they don't get rid of him immediately, then you're definitely casting your awesome card the following turn because he's making everything too cheaper. Um, and he, he's six, which means that you can hit him with natural, with just triple Tron. You don't have to go right. Seven is a magic number, um, seven and below, and he's below that. So he works pretty well there as well. Yeah, this is a pretty great planeswalker at rare. Um, foils are going to be gorgeous. Uh, this card will be worth money. And the only question is whether it's yeah. ever going to get low enough that we get a shot at it. I suspect that it does because I think it, it will definitely be experimented with in modern, but modern's going to be combo-y for a little while here. And so right around the time where this is coming out, we're going to be coming off Pro Tour London. And all the decks are going to be combo-centric. And or 
really fast aggro decks that are looking to get in under those combos and disrupt them in some way. And it's possible that Ugin's not a big deal in standard. So at peak supply, foils, probably. Oh yeah, this card is definitely uh, on track to be a little bit of a slower burn, most likely. But uh, I would be very interested in mm-hmm. trying to find these at like maybe... I don't think I would expect the non-foils to bottom out at like three to six. Sure. That's going to be my rough guess. And I think that's probably a reasonable, a reasonable get, reasonable get there. Um, can I tell you what card doesn't impress me Go at all? It. it don't impress me much. Uh, Niv-Mizzet Reborn. Five mana, one of each color for a six, six flyer. And when he enters the battlefield, reveal the top 10 cards of your library for every guild card, every card that's too, that's, a, that's specifically a guild color pair, you can draw it great you know what the math on that is it's terrible like if every card in your deck that's not a land is exactly a guild pair color a guild pairing you're st- and it's a five color deck you're still not drawing that many cards so it's like a five mana for a six six flyer that probably draws you maybe two cards eh. Eh. i don't know about two like the, the the weird thing here is you have to build your deck relatively evenly to max those numbers right yeah which is miserable it's easier over time though so I suspect there's a decent build of him now, and then over time it gets better and better as it gets better options. The I think you're right that you probably end up drawing... I mean, you need Frank Karsten to run the math, but you probably end up drawing something like two to four cards, and it gets better if you stack your deck somehow. Uh, so so I, I know that he ran some numbers, and I don't have it in front of me, and I don't want to go look for it in the middle of the cast, but it was... It was pretty abysmal. The the stat that he tossed out was like, ugh. However bad you think it was, it was worse than that. Hmm. It was rough. I was I, rough. I think more importantly, I people don't seem super excited to build him, so I suspect he will be maybe top five commanders from the set, but that doesn't really mean much. Um. So let's put it this way: when we were talking about Haven of the Spirit Dragon, more excited about Ugin than I am about Niv, but possible that that plus ravager in edh might be enough to give people their exit there maybe maybe well okay um i don't know anything else here doing it for you uh i thought soul diviner uh is probably gonna be a long-term foil play at some point two years from now we'll notice that the supply is relatively low that's the two three for a blue and a black Remove a counter from an artifact creature, land, or planeswalker you control and draw a card. This would be worth trying in a tracks of builds that also have Glacial Chasm in them, say to protect the planeswalkers, because the Soul Diviner can take keep taking the cumulative upkeep counter off Glacial Chasm and basically nullifying its expanding mana cost. Yeah, that is a he's a he's a very nifty card. I agree. I um, he caught my eye too. Is the type of thing that'll be kind of quiet. Um, you're not going to see him go nuts and in, in, uh, most likely and in, in plow through the inventory, but he has a nifty ability that people will find use for in all sorts of places, like you said, like pulling counters off of um, Glacial, Glacial Chasm uh, or effects like that. Um, he, he, has a, he has a cool ability, uh, a really good draw engine, um, probably pretty solid and standard if you get one of these, you know, uh, one of these cheaper planeswalkers, like a three mana one with a plus one ability. Does that exist? There might not be one of those. Um, but you can play him on two. Then you play one of these walkers on three, uh, you know, with a solid, 
solid um, loyalty cost and a plus one ability. Uh, and then you can kind of plus the Planeswalker and then eat the counter to draw a card, uh, which is a pretty cool engine there. Looks oh. like all the cheaper Planeswalkers have minus, don't have pluses. So there was a, a card that it potentially pairs with for standard that we didn't talk about that's definitely worth a, a look. Blast Zone. Pretty powerful, but subtly so. Well, no, that's not correct. Blast Zone is a card that people think is better than it is, but it's actually better than the people that think it's bad think it is. Somewhere in the middle <laughs> is where this card's going to end up. And it gets I think it gets a lot better in EDH where you can manipulate it. You have so many more tools to manipulate it. But this is a land that's colorless. When it enters the battlefield with a charge counter on it, it doesn't come into play tap, so you can tap it right away. XX lets you put X charge counters on it, and then three in a tap. Destroy each non-land permanent with converted mana cost equal to the number of charge counters on Blast Zone. So notably, it comes in with a counter on it. So you can't just pay three, sack it, and kill all the tokens. Which I think is a nod to the tokens deck in standard. Um, but if you remove the counter with Soul Diviner or by some other method, then you could do that. And you can manipulate manipulate this in a bunch of ways, wipe stuff out kind of as a point removal spell or as a sweeping effect. And then in something like in EDH and something like Lord Windgrace, where you're presumably running Crucible of Worlds and other ways of getting your lands back, you're just going to keep doing this over and over again. Mm-hmm. The, the combo of put this into play immediately eat the counter to draw a card and then blow up all of your opponent's tokens is pretty sick. I will give you that. Yeah, and it's it's hard to say, like, I don't know what, you know, you can't just run four of this and four of the <laughs> the guy that takes the counter off and call a day. You have to have a game plan that goes beyond that particular interaction. So who knows if, if it actually is useful in standard? But I could see a world where, say, Esper Control decks might run a copy or two to deal with specific things or have it in the sideboard as an option to bring in. Yeah, it definitely feels like the type of thing where maybe you're playing three to four soul diviners to work with a couple cards and one of the cards in your deck is blast zone um, as a way of answering certain stuff. I guess it's cuter than it is probably meaningful, but it is nifty anyways. All right. So that seems like a pretty good overview of what's been going on this week. I would agree. Where can our listeners find you, James? You guys can find me on Twitter at MDGCritic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. And I am constantly haunting the MTG Price Pro Trader Discord, helping all of our lovely Pro Traders uh, make and save money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. And I am Travis Allen. I am on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday for MTG Price. Uh, I do this podcast, and I ha- uh, occasionally float through the Discord, although I'm less active than James. Um... I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money. And I would like to point out, this week has been especially spicy. <laughs> if you've been on the fence thinking about becoming a Pro Trader... This would have been a great week to get in there, and it is not too late. There are still uh, a lot of big happenings going on, and we have some big news to drop in there in the next few days. So if you are interested, reach out to one of us, and we will get you hooked up. 
Yeah, so if you're not a pro trader, good job, idiot. <laughs> We've been doing some trials lately. Like I, 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 I hollered on Twitter and said, hey, if you've been thinking about this, try it out. And basically nobody who's tried it has not signed up. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I have uh, I have poked, you know, when I look in there, there is definitely a lot of uh, a lot of action for sure. Um, OK, uh, once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product and a. Oh, I can tell you wrote this because it's got the word plethora in it. And I noticed you've already said that like four times tonight. <laughs> Use the promo code finance five during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. That brings us to the end of MTG Fast Finance episode 164. Uh, good time as always. Join us next week to finish off the War of the Spark. I think finish off the just about finish off. Now it won't be done, right? Because next week is the third week, so we'll be almost done with the War of, War of the Spark spoilers next week. Well, and we're set up to be discussing probably the Mythic Edition strategy. Uh, by that point, we should probably know what's in it, and we'll have <laughs> a pretty it. good sense. <laughs> pretty Well, we'll see. I, I suspect it's going to be great, and we'll see what the roster looks like, and we'll talk that through. We're also, either next week or the week after, we're going to be having Daniel Fournier, um, uh, Magic Ooh. Magic Pro out of Toronto, and a judge um, come on to burst the bubble on whatever cards I think are cool in War of the Spark that are not actually cool. So we'll be getting a, a pro in the house to uh, help us parse the final card list from the set. Uh, I am excited and, to have Dan on. I will yeah, tell you that. He's good, good people. And then a couple of weeks down the road, we're going to have our boy Jason Alt on to talk to us about how to um, interpret the stats on EDH rec to maximum benefit. That is good too. Uh, you know, I'm going to bend Jason's ear. I don't think he can do a damn thing about it, but I'm still going to bend his ear about all the other things that I want EDH rec to tell me that it currently does not. And I'm <laughs> going to make him answer for it, even though he has no control over it whatsoever. Fair enough. All right. See you guys all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.